Welcome to Sparkler Monthly's first podcast. <laughs> we are here with Sparkler Monthly's chief editors and our marketing coordinator, Carolyn Calabrese. Please introduce yourselves. Number one, comics. I'm Lillian diaz Prisbel. I'm the head of comics. I worked for Tokyo Pop for a long time and have been doing various things since then <laughs> in the sort of generally Hollywood-related slash freelance online manga world. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. All right. sound so enthused about your current career. I, I'm only about halfway through my cup of, first cup of coffee for the day. So right. Oh, yeah. It's much earlier yeah, for you than us. Yeah, it's early for you. <laughs> but it's not that early. It, it's like 10. But I, I was up pretty late last night proofreading Harlequin manga. So mm. uh, was it terrible? Is, uh, was it about sheiks? Just really inane. Like yeah. they're not bad, and they're you know, like the people working on them are all really good. So like it's, it's yeah, not yeah. a hard job. It's just they're so inane. <laughs> Were they sexy? This is Harlequin. Uh, are those sexy? I mean, there is sex in them. I would not call them sexy. I mean, are um, they like? The, well, I don't know what I'm. No, I don't know what I'm saying. Oh, anymore. most of the Harlequin manga ones, I think they're pretty. They're tame. Yeah. I was just wondering yeah. how the manga stacks up to the to the books to the. They're novels. not doing like the the racy ones. At least yeah. from what I've seen, they're doing like. I mean, I have seen chic Harlequin manga, like Desert, you know, Prince of the Desert oh. stuff. <laughs> I don't Why? know what what are you what kind are you I working on, Lillian? I would say about fifty percent of mine have involved either amnesia, pregnancy, or both. Pregnesia? <laughs> pregnesia. Yeah. That is actually the title of a Harlequin. I Just know. to clarify, pregnesia. Are you serious? Yes, oh yeah, actually... smart bitches wow. had this amazing post about it. It was fantastic. Great. Oh, to clarify, nice. smart bitches trashy books is a big blog about romance novel. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure that's going to come up multiple times, especially if we're going to at all talk about Harlequin today. Okay, right. one intro down. <laughs> Let's do the next one. Let's go for audio. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scoble, and I am the head of the audio department. Uh, I also run our store. I don't have impressive sounding credentials like Lillian does. <laughs> Come on, you worked at one of the I, most well-known comic book stores in North America. That's true. I have kind of an eclectic list, a uh, bunch of skills. I worked at uh, The Beguiling in Toronto for like five years. I do some rewriting for Seven Seas and Tokyo Pop. I was a really, really bad music major for longer than a person should be in undergrad. <laughs> and I've been doing audio for like three years, pretty much nonstop, which is my main audio credential. Well, that you were classically trained. And I remember when you used to compose as part of your degree and all your music sounded kind of like video game music. And I was like, I feel like we can apply this to some sort of <laughs> job. Music sounds like video game music when you make it on a computer and you don't have really good instruments. Well, that's true. It's called <laughs> MIDI, right? Say. Oh, uh, well, MIDI is... <laughs> I'm not going to get into exactly what MIDI is, okay. but... Uh... <laughs> I wouldn't understand it. So. It's, I mean, MIDI is a way of encoding music with a computer, and the actual way that it sounds, it, it has more to do with what your computer is and... like. Is what, it just what... really compressed, then? Is that why it's like kind of goes with primitive sounding stuff? Yeah, well, it, it can be. It's the file size of an actual MIDI file, if you don't have any actual instrument information in there, is very small, which is why you could use it for like, very old computer music, because it's the computer itself is where the sound comes from. Like, like it, it would be a code to tell your computer how to play the song, and your computer would have instruments in it. So it's not oh. like a recording. It's yeah. uh, it's more like, like a blueprint. Uh, that reminds me. Of, so I'm incredibly old. And I remember <laughs> when we had the early computers, you used to put in a 
tape, a cassette tape, and like turn it on, and it would make all these weird sounds, and then that's kind of a program, and maybe it's the same kind of thing because it's like hmm. system sounds. Well, I'm I'm slightly less old than, than you, so <laughs> you, I... you don't have to spare my feelings. Don't worry. I know that I'm the only one here that remembers that, and I was like three, so that's a long time ago. Yeah, well, that was a terrible description of MIDI. Everyone should Google MIDI because it's interesting <laughs> and get a real description of how it works instead of one that's kind of mumbly and confused. All right, let's do let's do uh, Leanne because she okay. can just talk about herself and it's easy and not awkward. You know, honestly, the, the goal is can right now I'm going to try to be less like myself and not just run off at the mouth because I think it's fair <laughs> for all of you guys to actually say something for a change. I'm Leanne Centaur. I'm the head of pros. Uh, I've been freelancing for a very long time. I started at Tokyo Pop in the 90s with the Sailor Moon novels and then I interviewed for the job that Lillian got and she got it instead of me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then Lillian became my editor and I did mostly rewriting. Now I also work for Seven Seas and that's the, the flip side to me getting Leanne's job is that I first was sort of heard about Leanne when I was in high school, and Leanne was rewriting the Sailor Moon novels for Tokyo Pop. There was an interview with her in Smile Magazine, which oh, was like Tokyo Pop's sort of attempt at doing like a shoujo fashion magazine. This was I, I was reading I remember that. more on the fashion magazine side, so it was like Seventeen with some manga at the back. Yeah, um, and there was an interview with Leanne in it, and I was you know I was reading it for Sailor Moon, so I was like, oh my god, there's this girl who's like exactly my age who's fucking getting paid to write this stuff for Tokyo Pop. That's crazy. But yeah, just it sort of started Tokyo Pop like spinning in my head, and then. I read Leanne's anime and manga related blog all through college, which is actually how we got a lot of recommendations for what my anime club bought at the time, <laughs> which I was 100% in charge of because no one else cared. <laughs> and she, yeah, and then I got her job, and then we became friends. So it's just, it's funny how like things in your life connect in weird ways. Mm -hmm. So that this, this little bit of knowledge that I had in high school would later come around and be someone who. I actually met and got to work with. So. And started a company with. Yeah. Started a company with, yeah. Well, you know, I think that's true with a lot of this industry. I mean, like, geek industries are pretty incestuous, but there's something about the English language manga right. industry that is, like, the most incestuous. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's buddies. Everybody read somebody's fan fiction in high school. It's like or you whatever, go to these, yeah. when you have, like, a party or a dinner, you go around and people are like, oh, dude, I didn't know you wrote that, or oh, shit, I really love that comic, and I didn't know you edited that. And, yeah, that sound effect that I made up with, now they all use that stupid sound effect that I made <laughs> up with. And it's, it's really great. And also, it's, it is flooded with women particularly at the editorial okay. stage, that is just, like, power girls holding up the fort, I guess. So it's very easy for us all to connect and, and bond over this. Well, fandom is a lot of it. Next, Carolyn. My name is Carolyn Calabrese. I am the uh, marketing coordinator for Sparkler. I'm also the line editor for Dead Endings. Um, I grew up reading manga obsessively. I remember I started reading Sailor Moon in like middle school. I was the first person in our circle of nerds to have the last volume of Sailor Moon stars, <laughs> which a girl named Amelia stole from me. Amelia, <laughs> if I ever hear from you again, I want that book back. <laughs> um, That's actually another funny thing about like working in, in anime and manga is I, I've got a couple of friends who have sort of an ongoing feud about who stole whose copy of like a VHS tape of the anime fake. <laughs> I was like, okay, sure guys. Anyway, sorry. It's a blood feud after somebody steals your... Actually, that does sound like a family. You know, like your aunt is always mad at your other aunt for 
taking the china that she thought was hers or something. Right. Yeah, yeah it's only old VHS tapes that you got in Chinatown that one day that they actually had it. And yes. yeah, no, I, I think I lost the Sailor Moon Supers movie that way to somebody oh who I will never forgive. I, I think we all have that. <laughs> Some bitch took my manga. <laughs> I write about comic on the internet, particularly shoujo and comics resembling shoujo. I was a Marvel intern for a little bit. That was cool. And now I'm working with Sparkler. Yeah. Uh, to clarify, Carolyn is also quite a bit younger than we are. So she's earlier in her career. I think you're about eight years younger than we are or so. Jeez, really? Now I'm yeah. What are you, 20, <laughs> are you 24, Carolyn? I turned 25 on Friday, last week, oh. Friday. Oh. <laughs> Happy birthday. Becca turned uh, 32 the other day. Ooh, Happy birthday happy to Becca birthday. as well. I, I would like to see that the one person we don't have here today is Lisa Patillo. She's our web admin, and she also helps a lot in design. And she's been really, really great. She just happens to be out today. So we'll have her in another podcast. Yeah, I would say her. if the design looks good, it's because Lisa did it. If it looks crappy, it's because I did it. That's <laughs> Work division between different aspects of, of our process. Hey, don't forget that if it looks crappy for like half an hour before somebody sweeps it and change it because it's so direly bad, that means I did it. So, <laughs> if you recall, I did the very original Tumblr and it was the most terrible thing in the entire universe and it was immediately changed. Jill, your turn. I'm Jill Astley and my web name is Lijaka CA. I started out. When I was a kid, I liked, I was really into video games. My parents never let me read, read comics, so I never got into American comics. But uh, Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball, the original, were just starting to go on TV when I was in high school, I think. And uh, my friends and I kind of adopted Sailor Moon and picked a Sailor Scout for ourselves. I was Mercury. And uh, then my friend actually got into fan subs before I did because we're in Canada and we had the Sailor oh, Moon sub suburb v That's right. <laughs> so we could the actually order the tapes. Yeah, the end of our, we used to have to make Canadian friends who would send yep. us VHS over That's the right. border of the last dub episode. That's right. Ah, wow. So my friend had all earlier. of Sailor Moon from VKLL. And then I started getting into Bubblegum Crisis was the, one of the first ones I watched, which I loved. You know, motorcycles that turn into robots and mechs, and they're all women. I went to Japan after, in university, to learn Japanese, kind of, and also because I was in, into anime, I started ordering Ribbon magazine from Japan. I had one of the early Ribbon websites. I kind of dropped out of geekery after I graduated university until I met, well, I got back into video games, but it wasn't until I met Leanne and Rebecca that I started really looking at industry stuff. I was never in the industry at all. I'm a corporate drone for a bank in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you were like a fan sub distributor, weren't you? Back in the yes. 90s? Yeah. Before I went to Japan and university, I was so into fan subs because that was back in the day when the only shit that was translated was like hentai and like apple seed, yeah. like really old <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Like they were still like, you had to go to Chinatown to get like Dragon Ball Z. Like that's how bad it was so yeah i'd had a lot of fan subs and that was when we man all the old fan sub distributors like fushigi yugi was being done and like the what was they called the technicolor dream girls they were doing all the really shoujo -y and some of the shoujo eye and stuff like that like brother dear brother yeah so i had this huge fan sub library and distributed it but i stopped after i went to japan 
Well, I should probably explain how we found Jill, because she has sort of one of the biggest uh, English-language blogs on Japanese otome games, which are, the short term is kind of like girl games in Japan, but a lot of them are sort of dating sims where you, you know, chase these boys and mm-hmm. or visual novels that are written for women. And I used to follow her blog because I got really into those about five years ago, and then I found out she was in Toronto, so I... <laughs> wrote her a really creepy email and I was like hey we should be friends <laughs> I'm outside your apartment kind of uh, email <laughs> actually I was really excited because I didn't have any geek friends and I didn't really think they're ex- I didn't think they existed in Toronto for I thought I was the only I one I know Toronto I was, was so like, used Toronto's to being the, the biggest geek and then Leanne emails me I'm like oh my god I'm so excited so I write her back an even creepier email <laughs> being like yes let's be friends and a beautiful friendship was born yeah. To be clear, this was about two years ago. This wasn't like when we were young. <laughs> Jill's of Condo is basically a shrine to shoujo of the 90s. Like, the first time she brought me in there. Hey, she I keep telling you it's late, late 90s. Late 90s. And I walked and in and I was 2000s. like, oh my god, it's all of Ribbon and, Mar- and Margaret's Tonkabon from, like, yeah. ten years ago. And it was all, you know, stuff like Miki Ayahara's old stuff and, like, Mayo Shinjo and then a couple. I don't select- have Mayo Shinjo. I don't Did like you not have Mayo Shinjo on no. there? No. Because I didn't you had like other, it. Oh, okay. You had other shoujo smut that I was like, oh, I've read this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then also she has the video game room, which is like almost every single Otome game that has come out in Japan over the last 10 years. I mean, Jill has all of the things. She's that friend that you get that has all the stuff. Yeah. It just so happens that Jill is also great. So it like works out for both reasons. <laughs> yeah. It's a holdover from when, you know, when I was fan subbing and stuff just wasn't available commercially so I always had to keep it and I still have like 300 VHS tapes in my parents basement that they're like uh do you really need these still I'm like wait just wait (laughs) you never know (laughs) you know you You never know maybe Kenshin will go out of print you know and I'll need to watch that again (laughs) do you want us to talk about how we started Spark yeah yeah sure that's a good thing to start with yeah okay do you want me to field that one? Yeah, you guys yeah, go you first because you're, you're, you're kind of the I mean, you're the instigator. Yeah, <laughs> that is a much better word. Around the time that um, Tokyo Pop shut down, which was spring of 2011, Rebecca and I we'd, we'd been freelancers for a while in the industry, and we were getting a little bit, I guess, disheartened with sort of the way things were going. That a lot of the small manga publishers that were bringing out the really good shojo were sort of going under. CMX used to do all this classic shojo, and they were gone. Tokyo Pop was pulling back from doing. I mean, they, they always did a really good shojo selection, but they necessarily had to get more conservative and just not put out as much. Gomi did some shoujo. A lot of the small boys love publishers were going under and we were just kind of like, "Eh, I feel like the manga industry can't really take risks on stuff that no one will buy. Because to be clear, most of the shoujo that we really like is stuff that no one buys. That it was (laughs) things for, you know, women, like slightly older women, stuff that wasn't just high school romance, things that weren't really catching on with the mainstream audience, but had fervent cult followings and were like really, really great series, but just didn't have the same mainstream appeal as some kind of like high school romance that just happens to have a lot of sex in it or like really hot boys or funny or whatever not to say there's anything wrong with those but we wanted a nice broad range of shoujo so we talked about if we wanted to ever go into publishing and sort of doing a digital publishing house because the kindles had started being really cheap because for a long time kindles did exist but they weren't something that the average person bought but then they all of a sudden went down to like 100 bucks and people were actually considering ebooks so we wanted to do something digitally and because at that point i had started getting really into the japanese publishing industry my japanese got just good enough that i could start reading untranslated manga and drama cds and i was just like god 
there's so many things in Japan that they do that we don't do over here, and the manga industry is probably not going to do it now because it's too risky. But if we were entirely digital, our overhead would be lower, blah, 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 blah. So at first, we wanted to do something that was implicitly female gaze because we were like, well, we want to publish homegrown manga and light novels and even audio dramas, which we'll go into later. But we only want to do stuff that we're really excited about, like things that we feel the market doesn't have that captures sort of that great shoujo we feel that we wanted that we felt you know for whatever reason was not being brought over from japan but at the same time would have kind of a western you know influence and also there were so many great uh, global manga creators from tokyo pop that when the their oel department shut down and they didn't have jobs anymore their series couldn't be finished and jen quick was a really big inspiration for this because we've been in love with jen quick and her work <laughs> for like a very long time over a decade i think at this point we used to follow her when she was in Amera Manga magazine by icm oh, we- yeah, we had we had pizza with her and a Soul Union cosplayer back at like Otakon and what was it like two thousand and three or something? I don't know. Something wow. like that. Yeah, yeah, it was great. So, <laughs> so we'd always had in the back of our mind that we're like more people should be taking these really great creators who are not necessarily in Japan and giving them an outlet. So it kind of meshed with what we felt about the manga industry and personal people that were like we know a couple of really great creators. But then when we actually started gathering people, Lillian was the first one we spoke to, and then Jill. We wondered how explicit we should be about being. Female gaze like a lot of people we were like oh is this gonna turn some people off they're like i don't want to read the girly stuff and not just men or anything just there's some people that are like oh god girly stuff like that's been othered in our culture there's a lot of denigration of the feminine and it's also wasn't necessarily stereotypically feminine like i was saying we we like the shoujo that was kind of about more the fantasies the the cop dramas the stuff that wasn't really an easy sell wasn't just like a romance but then we decided maybe we should come out of the gate and say this is really femme friendly stuff we're mostly marketing to women ages 15 to 30 and thankfully people were really really receptive to that like way more receptive than i guess we feared but i mean it makes sense i I think it's interesting that we are all kind of like staunch card-carrying feminists and yet we were scared of labeling ourselves like that i think it just shows how deeply ingrained this kind of fear of owning who you are and embracing the feminine especially if that femininity is not quote-unquote mainstream is but people were super supportive and i'm ultimately really glad we did it and it also i think explains to people better what we're trying to do that we're basically a show jojo say magazine and when you tell them that they're like oh now i know what you are <laughs> because this is the way they do it in japan they arrange their stories by the audience they don't arrange mm-hmm. it by the genre they say this is for girls and it doesn't matter if it's a cop drama or a love story or an undersea fantasy or whatever it is it's just it's for women it'll all be in the same magazine now granted their mag separate out by genre to a point like you'll get some magazine that are more fantasy or whatever but it's all based on what audience are you catering to Mm -hmm. and we always really believed in that because if you do it by genre you get these weird it's it's like the chick flick problem where they're like oh all love stories are for girls and then all non-love stories are for boys and that's just not true by any stretch of the imagination and it kind of limits you a lot creatively as opposed to saying that oh we're trying to reach this very nebulous concept female gaze which these days we're calling more femme friendly because we're trying not to it's not really just for women it's just it's catered more to a general sense of femininity and it shows feminine characteristics as positive it's not the more traditional male gaze which sort of assumes that the audience is male or subscribes to the traditional notions of masculinity at any rate but japan's been doing it forever so people who understand the japanese market where they were like oh okay this makes sense but people don't do it in english as much because it's very different how we market over here but i, I think it works 
Same thing with like the serial magazine, right? That the way that Sparkler is designed is totally off of those thick manga, we call them manga phone books, the sort of anthology magazines, uh, only a digital version and uh, stories that are serialized. Again, not something that is being done that much over here. Obviously, Shonen Jump has an English version. Pretty much every major manga company has done an anthology magazine at some point. There was the Shoujo Beat was really great from Viz for a while. They mm. used to even, An America Extra, which was a magazine that used oh, to have yeah. like, a comic in it, eventually became all comics. Mm-hmm. Or I think it was An America, and then An America Extra was the all comics version. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did Pulp way back in the day, where they were serializing Banana Fish. Yes. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amera Manga was was yeah, Pulp where Parasite ran. That was mixed no, up. that was that was Tokyo Pop. Oh, okay, yeah, they started yeah. with an anthology magazine as well. Sailor Moon was serialized. They mm-hmm. did floppies as well. I mean, it's not like we're doing anything that hasn't been done before. It's oh, no. just with the exception of sort of the Shonen Jump right now, nobody really stuck to it. And there wasn't much original content. It was mostly translated, with the exception of Amerimanga magazine. But at the same time, like, technically, pretty much every webcomic and fanfic is is serialized. So it's not like this is a concept people don't get. And our audiences tends to be into that kind of things. Oh, yeah. I'm just talking about it as a business model. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I think that people, this is not a format that's going to surprise people. But at the same time, it's a little bit different from how the majority of the manga industry at least disseminates translated manga these days. Because mm-hmm. it yeah, is. I mean, and, and that's almost entirely because of the nature of print publishing in the United States. So, like, the magazine format has been struggling for decades now, Mm -hmm. various reasons, as newsstands slowly die and print publishing in general starts getting absorbed by digital. The whole model of the U.S. manga industry is based on a very specific outreach to bookstores and we're a small company and that's just not feasible for us. And it's also not something we're interested in. So, yeah great as that model is and it works for a larger company it can really squash the smaller competitors there's just not enough bookstore space there's not enough interest so being able to kind of approach things from a different perspective and to focus much more heavily on the digital which is the space where a lot of our readership is anyway yeah um, that's kind of a no-brainer so like we didn't really want to do it the way the bigger publishers did we wanted to do it our way Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a hybrid. It's like inspired by the way they do in Japan and then obviously inspired by the Western manga industry. And right. the Global Manga Initiative is by Tokyo Pop and IC Entertainment and Yen Press, which was doing Yen Plus, which was a digital magazine until like six months ago, where Rem, who's one of our artists, was doing the soulless manga, which was being serialized. So we're really combining a bunch of things that other people mm-hmm. are doing and trying to... Trying to make it work. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. Magazines are brutal. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Does anybody want to go into their question. We're looking at a, a shared Google Doc, if anybody Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think we're all in there now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's how we trade a lot of stuff between different folks in the company. So actually, that's one of the questions that came in over the transom, I think, from, from Tumblr. Yeah, was, from, um, actually, it was from uh, the forum. So it was from, the from forum? Wonder1440, who's a great Sparkle fan, I have to say. Oh, she's um, the best. She said, I'd like to know if you guys are working in one location or if everyone has a home office. Yeah, everyone say where you are. How about that? So I'm in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in Connecticut. I actually do sort of share an office with Rebecca. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in Toronto. I'm in Austin, Texas. So That's the great thing about digital, right? You can yeah. be wherever you want. And we do a lot of our work on Google Docs. <laughs> 
that well i'm i'm a big dropbox person but lillian has dug her feet in and it's like no fuck you in dropbox (laughs) there's there's a zillion reasons why i hate dropbox but one of the biggest ones is that i need to download files in bulk a lot and dropbox just makes that a huge pain in the ass Mm. well you work with image files i work with text so yeah yeah, i get it but we'll never agree on this so (laughs) it's a combination of yeah but uh, yeah we have we have the option of doing things differently because (laughs) Mm -hmm. the digital space gives us that flexibility so Mm -hmm. our retails all run out of connecticut it's our corporate office which is like basically uh where jill is she runs the numbers because we we are a toronto-based company and rebecca and i because we're in connecticut we basically drive up every eight to twelve weeks Mm -hmm. and do some work there a week the audio drama we're doing now is almost entirely recorded in toronto so usually we go up there we record a week we do amount of paperwork we do shows in, in toronto when we can and it's sort of the big of our operations. But we're not the only ones who are spread out. Our creators are spread all over the world, too. Mm-hmm. Although we're an, uh, an English-first magazine, our creators are not all Americans or Canadians. Fong En, who did the illustration for Maiden and the Fish, with that Heian-era sort of princess, mm-hmm. she's in Vietnam. She might have been the furthest person, although Romy, Romy Chan, who does a bunch of stuff for us, she works on Tokyo Demons, but she also did, like, a cover of Gauntlet. She was in Sweden until really recently. I think she just moved to Holland. And then everybody else is spread, you know, we've got people in Europe and, you know, all over the place, which is great. That means we can get we basically can tap the entire global audience for who's making the best stories and that's kind of how it's worked out we do have certain time periods where we have open submissions where anybody is allowed to come and pitch to us and we've gotten some really great stuff from corners of the world that were like wow this is just more of this please who are you like <laughs> like let's get on skype and, and talk about this and, yeah yeah we saw a lot of what was it spanish we saw a ton of really good spanish illustrators kind of flooded There's a in. lot of really good spanish yeah. illustrators and, and artists in general so yeah i'm not sure what it is that like triggered this boom in the the spanish language manga industry but yeah yeah like i i spend a lot of time on tumblr looking at art and, and following people and there's definitely a, a really strong contingent of spanish illustrators who i follow yes it's awesome and you get people are influenced by obviously we have a really strong manga influence and in everything but people are definitely influenced by more than that and we're seeing <laughs> whatever your homegrown Uh, illustration or comic style is and then obviously everybody's individual tastes and stuff and one thing that we really wanted to do well after the launch but also just over the course of the magazine is we really want to diversify our style that you can see sort of that manga baseline but we wanted to get artists who all looked really different we wanted the manga to look different wanted the illustrations for the pros and the audio and i think that we're starting to see that now that we kind of the second round of books that started this past couple months you're starting to see this interesting variety of of art styles and we're always looking for something new and 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 different looking and but it's still accessible so because you know we all have biases and stuff and we want things that match stories well and kind of go with the manga aesthetic to a point but it's really fun like oh my god going through artist portfolios you're just like oh my god i want to give all these people jobs (laughs) I think that's something that's really cool about the way that the manga boom and shoujo kind of just seeped into so many different artists' lives and shaped their ideas about comics, about what comics could be, or manga. I just think it's so exciting to see all of those different kinds of styles playing together and making something really unique. Mm-hmm. And that's something I really like and look forward to. It was yeah. definitely something that was really interesting about working at Tokyo Pop on original manga. Because when I started in 2004, which was exactly 10 years ago. I was someone who had started, I'd always liked comics. I'd been a comics reader since I was a kid. And I kind of shifted from like Tintin and Asterix to like a Marvel phase when I was late elementary school through middle school. And then kind of dropped off the comics reading radar for a while because as a young teenage girl, like suddenly I didn't really 
feel comfortable in comic book stores anymore. Yeah. Um, not that anything specific ever happened. It, it was yeah. just sort of this, I don't know, I've got weird nerd anxiety too. And then I, I kind of discovered Sailor Moon and then Gundam Wing when I was in sort of late high school. <laughs> uh, there I am. Oh, Gundam Wing. 17 and, and reading stuff aimed at 12 year old girls, but whatever. Hey, I was, um, I was doing ribbon. That's like grades four to six. <laughs> and I was in university. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, wow, I mean, these are amazing. There just wasn't that much stuff available. So I mean, Sailor Moon was one of the first manga that was I mean, Rama had been around for longer than that. But like, that was the thing that really went big. And mm-hmm. so people of my generation, our generation, and kind of slightly older, manga was something that they picked up relatively late into their sort of creative development cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and that have kind of been influenced it uh, by it since then. Whereas people who are just five years younger than us, um, Carolyn, mm-hmm. yeah, grew up in in a really different way. Like their yeah. exposure level from everything from like Pokemon onward has mm-hmm. just been like from a much earlier point in their creative life cycle, and it, it just influences them in a completely different way. In the early days of Tokyo Pop, there was a lot. We got a lot of flack for like oh, you're trying to copy the Japanese. Like, it's not real manga because it's done by white people. And you're like, this is just dumb. Like, <laughs> if it sucks because it's derivative and it's boring, then it sucks because it's derivative and it's boring. It's not yeah. because, mm-hmm. you know, it's done by somebody who wasn't Japanese. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this is demonstrated by the stuff that was successful for Tokyo Pop, is that the things that, you know, people had sort of absorbed the style in a really different way and kind of integrated into their own style, those were the things that tended to be more successful. But... Again, it was, people were sort of picking it up kind of late in the game. And I was really aware of the fact as we were working on things that, you know, most of the artists I was working with at the time were about my age. They were kind of in their early to mid-20s, sometimes a little bit older than that, and had art school backgrounds of different kinds. People came from all sorts of different places. But you could watch people develop their style as they were working through their series. Book one of a series looked very different from book three of a series, just because drawing 300 pages of comics, no matter what you're doing, is going to sort of affect your style and affect how you understand the medium. Mm-hmm. That's and you see that in, in Japanese manga, too. That yeah. Like, you get volume one of Fruits Basket versus volume 23 of Fruits Basket, you're, mm-hmm. you can yeah. almost tell that it's the same artist. Uh, please yeah. save my um, earth, anyone? <laughs> oh my god, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I was very aware that like if we lasted long enough, as a company, then what we really wanted was people's second series. So the Mm. first series is the learning process. The second series is where you start really hitting your stride. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the things that was kind of a bummer about Tokyo Pop is we never really got to that point with anybody. So it's it's been exciting to kind of have another chance at that um, to not only be working with some of the people who I've been working with all along in sort of a new context, whether it's Jen Quick or Christy Lievsky, who I didn't actually really edit very much at Tokyo Pop. She was somebody else's, but I was always a fan of her stuff. Or to a lot of new people who are coming out. You know, these are the people who read DramaCon and Offbeat when they were 15, like I was when I found Sailor Moon. And that's affected them the same way that Sailor Moon affected me. You know, that, that whole dichotomy of the U.S. versus Japan, I feel like, is gone. How people interact with the anime manga style and sort of integrate it into their work is really different. It's just it's been fun to watch that process. Well, and as you said, I mean, you brought up earlier that you didn't feel comfortable in comic stores when you were younger. And this is something that's been coming up a lot in the blogosphere and and women in the comics industry and female fans. That it is so different now from what it was like 10 or 15 years ago. And women are kind of coming en masse into the comics industry. And they were always huge in manga because manga had shoujo and and Sailor Moon, too, which was a really foundational part of the, the manga boom and just sort of introduction to anime in the West. So the manga fandom is already at least 50% women, and 
they're loud and proud. There are still women who feel uncomfortable in comic stores and, you know, the sort of the boys club, especially if it's sort of a more superhero-y influenced, but that is fading. First of all, there are more women who are less embarrassed about it because I think it is more common to identify as female and be really into comics. And also I think the misogyny is sort of dying Mm -hmm. (laughs) a little bit in the industry. And also when people see it, they call it out now too. Yeah. So if there's an instance where like, hey, this comic store is being really not friendly to women or even actively hostile to women and it goes on tumblr and everybody knows now Mm -hmm. (laughs) if they want to keep their clientele they'll deal with it and and this is something also we saw at which is interesting the beguiling which is obviously um you know it's considered the greatest comic store in north america where where becca was and (laughs) let's all just keep repeating that statistic over yeah (laughs) of course the beguiling you always say that it's considered the best comic store but obviously, it has a lot more than the traditional comics. It has a really large female clientele. But when Becca started working there, I think you were the only woman who worked there. And by the time you left, it was 50% women. And we were just on there a couple of weeks ago, picking up comics and saying hi to everybody who worked there. And it was more women in the store than men. And I mean, this is just like over the last three years. Women are kind of pushing into the industry, and it's being normalized very quickly. For, mm-hmm. for a long time, it was a little bit fringe. Mm-hmm. And like you said, Lily, and there was sort of the slow integration. And I think manga had a big part of that, where it's just like now being a geek is like kind of in a little bit. And mm-hmm. a lot of people aren't even thinking twice about it. And if they see somebody being weird or at the very least just not inclusive in some yeah. way, they actually try and deal with it. So not to say this isn't still a problem in some places, because according to Tumblr, it absolutely is. But that's true with any business they're going to be jerks and, and honestly, yeah, no, uh, true. considering the comics right now that are specifically coming out for like the elementary school female set this is only going to become more and more normal as those kids oh, yeah. grow up yeah. yeah i feel like now we hear about it more partly because it is getting better people are speaking yeah. about it more and also the diehard misogynists are screaming as loud as they can oh yeah it's, no, they feel their lifestyle dying yes. yeah, it's the death throes <laughs> yes that's what i like to think of it as yeah yeah, yeah. We were talking about kind of the way that manga has has made comics a little bit more accessible. In my age group, I remember when I was a little girl, my grandma got me um, a superhero comic with a female superhero. And I remember that the superhero in the story just got her ass handed to her. She was beaten up in a really brutal way. I don't think my grandma really read it. I think she was just like, there's a tough girl, Carolyn. You'll love it. It's great. But it was really scary and dark and in a way that I would realize when I was older, really unsettling and kind of like a weird sexual undertone of this like female <laughs> superhero getting beaten up. I didn't really go near comics, mainstream comics for a long time, but because I got into reading manga when... I was in middle school and Sailor Moon S, I think, was on Toonami. Mm-hmm. And I would watch it with my brother. And when we found out that there were comics, we just read them obsessively. And we would pretend to be different Sailor Scouts because my brother's really cool. And <laughs> <laughs> Who was he? We fought over who got to be Sailor Neptune because she had the best hair. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, that is a beautiful story. You and your brother fighting over who got to be Sailor Neptune. Oh, the new generation, you're going to save us. Shibuya because she was the little annoying one. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> but but I really liked Usagi a lot. It really opened up this world to me. I remember I read Kare Kano. I started collecting it mm. during 8th grade. Every <laughs> single 
holiday, every single birthday, every time I babysat, I put all of my money that I earned towards trying to go to Akon and never getting to go and buying <laughs> volumes of Kari Kano. And I have all 21 volumes now. I bought the last one the week before I graduated high school, before I left for university. Even though I've reread it a million times and even though I have problems with some of the things oh, yeah. I was going to say, it's too bad you didn't stop right around volume 14. <laughs> yeah, I, I was very, I'm still angry about that. Yeah. But yeah, I remember I read DramaCon and I remember wanting it to be that way in real life. I think when, when the main character gets scouted by that editor and she's got like this really supportive female comics infrastructure, I remember being really inspired about the way that that was and wanting to do comics and I started reading other kinds of comics. I got really into Sandman and that weird way high school kids do where they think <laughs> really cryptic and smart but really they're just saying things like isn't the world a dark place but when you dream it's better or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't have given comics in general a chance and for me it is very integrated the like comics manga continuum came of age kind of at the time where things were a lot more mixed and you can see like mainstream comics people get really on edge about manga which makes me really sad because I feel like they're missing out on so much good work but I'm really glad that I got to have all of this stuff at my disposal I mean I didn't have cable so I, I got into fan subs because I wanted to be the most elite little baby otaku in my high school. Awesome. Like, I don't watch Inuyasha, but I can give you all of these Evangelion fan subs that I got on the internet. If you know, if you're really into the good stuff, and then that kind, of, <laughs> you really need to not watch the dub. And it was really just because I didn't have cable and I didn't want anyone to know. Awesome. <laughs> nice. Oh god! In in our high school, I was definitely the fan sub dealer. Like kids would come oh, yeah. to the the lunch table. Like well, Becca used to sit with me because we've been friends a really long time. And they'd be like, "I need volume four for Shikayugi," and like I kind of pass it to them under the table, you know, because maybe they didn't want their lunch table knowing how badly they needed volume four for Shikayugi. But yeah, it used to be who you knew, right? That particularly when it came to translated manga, you know, you would go find a Japanese bookstore somewhere, you would buy the Japanese books, you would go look for a .txt file of the translation, and you would read along. Or if you were, you know, Jill or Lily, and you just learned Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No shortcuts here. Which is how I eventually well, I had to major in too. something in college. So. I know, right? <laughs> Me as well. I, 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 I did know, try Spanish first. And calculus and like, so much for astrophysics. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I did Spanish first because people were like, no, but it's so much easier than Japanese. And it wasn't because I wasn't interested in anything in Spanish. Yeah. So. I had my nerd rebellion going on where I was like, I'm not that into manga. I, I like other things, too. I'm not going to be one of those weird kids in the Japan Association weirding out all of the Japanese students. <laughs> no offense, UT Japan Association. Some of y'all are really cool. Um, yeah, I was, pretty good at, I was pretty good at hiding my geekery enough that people were surprised when they would come into my dorm room in Japan and I'd have three bookcases of 
manga. And this was when I was there for 10 months. People were like, whoa, yeah, yeah. you like that stuff? The first night that we got there, the first thing I did, because I was with a group of people from my university, was go into a convenience store and buy the ribbon summer vacation special. That was the right. first thing I did. They were like, <laughs> what's that? I'm like, nothing, really. I spent like the last day of my first trip to Japan trying to track down volume 17 of X1999, which had just come out in Japan. <laughs> So I was looking for it everywhere, and I found it, like, right at the very end of my trip. Ooh, oh, nice. I was, I was looking for excited. one of the Fushigi Yugi novels on one of my trips to Japan back in 2000. I couldn't, I couldn't get it. My Japanese was so terrible that I was... Well, the I novel really section the... is a lot harder to navigate than it the is, manga yeah. section, too. Well, and also Which just is say... really saying something, because it's not like yeah. the manga section is easy to navigate. Because <laughs> no. The store is simply like the world's worst organizational system. I think it's... You have yeah. to know, right? Like, you have know, to know that... organized by publisher. Yeah, you have to know so, like, how to look. It's like the yeah. address system there. It's like you don't look at like, yeah. you know, state, street, whatever. It's like, oh, what okay. block are you on? With one exception, the way they organize doujinshi by couple That's is amazing. <laughs> That's the best. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> yes. The, one section, we were in this giant doujinshi. This was recent, two years ago. We were in, I don't know, Mandaraki. We were somewhere on Otome Road. And they had a section, like the one piece doujinshi section was humongous. And they had this wall that just said like, ace uke. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm going to be here a while. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about prose a little, since we were talking about comics. Leanne, what do you see as differences between serialized novels versus all-at-once novels? Oh, this one's easy. Serials go so much faster. Part of what I really like about serialization is you are constantly being forced to make it interesting. And I think that sometimes when somebody is doing like a novel in one sitting or all at once, they think about the overall book as one piece, right? And there's nothing wrong with that because you need sort of a good cohesive story arc, character arts, etc. But when you're serializing it, you have to constantly have cliffhangers. Things have to be punchy. They have to move along. And also, uh, well, I'll go into this in a minute, but serialization kind of gives you more freedom. But the result is when you have to do that every chapter... By the time the book comes out at the end, it's like a real page turner. And that was something that we discovered sort of doing Tokyo Demons before we opened Sparkler was that when the first book came out and we had serialized the whole thing, one of the most common good pieces of feedback I got was that like once I got to chapter three, I literally couldn't stop reading because it just kind of moved really quickly. And the other thing uh, about giving yourself some space to think, like when you're serializing something, you're getting kind of constant feedback on it. Also, you're doing it over a long period of time. So you kind of have more time to sort of mull over the little pieces, you know, because you know where the story is going, hopefully. But at the same time, you're sort of stretching out that creative process. And as a result, you end up thinking of new ideas as you're doing it. It's a combination of what are the readers saying, new ideas that come to you once you actually started reading it, your editor kind of being <laughs> all up in your face, kind of like, well, you have this next chapter, let's talk about this chapter, let's get on Skype, whatever. You're constantly adding to it. And I have noticed that with a lot of our writers, they have like a good cohesive story arc and stuff when we start. But as they go along, they start kind of getting into the serial mindset and they're like, oh, you know, I was thinking maybe this because I don't think people are going to see this coming or I think this could be more exciting this part I never really had a good connection between this scene and this scene so I thought maybe we could have a explosive you know whatever it makes everything more exciting and more interesting and it's more fun to write it's more fun to publish I think and then at the end you get something like explosive things can get bloated which is always a danger and I think this has happened a little bit to Tokyo Demons which will not ever end um, <laughs> but <laughs> that's kind of what editorial is supposed to be in there and, and that's why we did Tokyo Demons first that we were like okay let's not make other people do serialized light novels and audio dramas until we've done it first and mm -hmm. know what kind of the pitfalls are because going off on a tangent is very easy 
But as long as your editor is there being like, no, don't do that, <laughs> then you should mostly be fine. But yeah, I freaking love serialization. I don't know if I could ever go back <laughs> to not serialize. What's interesting, I was just looking a bit into research for these questions. It's not like it's a new idea. It's Dickens really did it. Idea. I mean, I didn't even realize that Dumas did it with like the Three Musketeers and Count of Monte right. Cristo and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, they do it in Japan a bit now, too. But yeah, it's it's interesting that it's just not seen as... Well, well, it is in the, the fan that... fiction community, though, I have to say. Yeah, yeah and that's no, no. very relevant to Sparkler, I think, is like, you know, so much of what we're doing, we're also pulling from kind of fandom. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And how we think that people like to consume things kind of on a fandom level. Mm-hmm. The archive of our own is like one of the greatest inventions of the oh, modern internet. Oh, it's your so ability great. to subscribe to authors. Oh, my God. Oh, mm. so um, good. I'm I'm not in charge of prose, so it's really up to Leanne how this stuff runs. But, you know, I think about how I like to consume stories from authors that I like. Yeah, just that excitement of, you know, you get to sort of the end of a chapter and there's a cliffhanger. And then you're sort of waiting for, like, the next installment. And there's an anticipation that builds up with that that I think is very fulfilling. Mm-hmm. So, oh, it's delicious, the anticipation. Kind of want to replicate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know so. a couple of our readers have... <laughs> have are not you know because not everybody likes serialization and there are a few because we really believe in cliffhangers right like yeah. intense severe cliffhangers so every once in a while somebody in the forum will be like that's it i quit all of you guys i can't take the pressure <laughs> we consider that a good sign though i love it right. when people yeah. go into one of the serials i'm like oh my god what's gonna happen next i'm like we yeah. succeeded i hate you all for this and you're like yes i know i know <laughs> it's the well, greatest if, if you would do some emotional reaction right that's the base of art like right. art should provoke an emotional reaction. So speaking of cliffhangers and everything, audiobooks. <laughs> we were just talking a little about Tokyo Demons. So let's talk about Awake versus Tokyo Demons. I want to know, how is it different when you're making it? And what did you learn from Tokyo Demons that you're applying now to Awake? Tokyo Demons is my first project, the very first real audio drama that I did that wasn't just me screwing around and learning how to use programs or whatever, was... Uh, one of these early scenes of Tokyo Demons when we were still casting it and we just we were like we need to come up with something exciting from chapter one that doesn't have Kiyoshi because we don't have a Kiyoshi yet <laughs> <laughs> that club scene and I wrote some like terrible awful faux techno music <laughs> to go in the background <laughs> just put that together and again like I mentioned that I was a really really bad music major so I, I had a little bit of a background of using you know they make you take like a technology course which mostly focuses on like uh, notation and a little bit of MIDI but we did learn how to use some of these audio editing programs a little bit, like some version of Pro Tools that's nine versions behind whatever the new version of Pro Tools <laughs> is. So I had a little enough of a background to kind of know where to start and I did a lot of internet research and did a lot of like messing around. And, and I mean, I, everything I do so far is in Audacity, which is like the free open source program. So uh, I totally suggest that people who have any interest in doing this go mess around with Audacity because it's a really powerful program and it's not like 100% pro level, but you can do almost anything you want to do in it, and it's a really great place to start. And you don't have to pay for it, which is really my main motivation for <laughs> using it, because some of that other stuff is, like, wildly expensive. Well, it's very user-friendly, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you started it as, a, like, kind of an experiment, and then you ended up sticking with it, because you're like, well, I kind of love it. Like, there's certain <laughs> things it wasn't good at, but... Yeah. Um, like, there there are a couple of things that, that it, it, it doesn't do that I wish it did, but... It's very much made up for by the fact that it, the, the user interface is really nice, and it's, I like a lot of things about it. Mm-hmm. It kind of, like, finds the other filters and plugins and stuff on your computer and integrates them for you sometimes, mm. and that's kind of great. Mm. Aside from that... How about number of actors? 
Oh, number of, oh God. Well, Tokyo (laughs) Demons is, you may notice if you haven't heard some of us speak before that most of the people on this podcast have been on in Tokyo Demons at some point. Tokyo Demons, all the actors are just our friends. We bribe them with pizza. Uh, we have a few very good actors in there who just happen to be our friends. Or and happen to work for pizza. And happen to work for pizza. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it, it's surprising when you tell someone, hey, I'm looking for actors. 90% of people will be like, really? Really? I could act? That would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> or voice act, specifically. where they Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be on camera. They don't have to worry about how they look at all. They just get to, like, do something kind of fun, and it takes an afternoon, and it's funny. And we it used takes... to do it at parties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We would have parties, and, like, like we'd, people would go one or two at a time into the other room. And, and yeah. I mean, you know, if you listen to the track, sometimes there are, like, six people watching while somebody does the acting. <laughs> Uh, so, I yeah. mean, we we have a real party atmosphere. Uh, we had to have, like, chanting for uh, Biako the gang. <laughs> I was leading cheers about, like, how Biako's the best gang. <laughs> Biako. In a slightly more convincing manner. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. was it? Like, Biako. Biako forever. And That's I, right. Forever. Save you, you should... never. Yeah. Oh, Same yeah. pretty convincing gang <laughs> chance. Yeah. Oh, we had like mild mannered David Namisato, who's like this, you know, comic, comic artist, artist of Toronto. Toronto. He's kind of laid back and he's got kind of a soft voice and just like cheer with me. <laughs> yeah. We cast oh, great. like somebody's sad dad and I think a 911 operator. I mean, like, we really cast it to the part because most yeah. of the people we were working with had never acted before and we're like, well, maybe we can just kind of coach you through it. But what was really important was, um, you know, getting the characterization right. They had to sound like they had the right voice for the role. And and Tokyo Demons has some kind of interesting parts in it. There are people with accents. There are people who are just kind of unusual. The guy who's depressed all the time and the guy who's happy all the time and the guy who's from a different country doesn't really speak the language and all that kind of thing. So, I mean, casting it was kind of, kind of a challenge and uh, interesting. And But Awake has six principal actors, and I got to, like, have auditions and stuff, because we have a mm. budget for that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, obviously, the um, quality of acting on that one is better, and if you've listened to it, it's just like, oh, my God, like, Riel. Riel is a, such a pro. She's a, yeah, she the voice Christina. of Tina. And the very first recording session I had, it was it was right after last TCAF. It was just scrambling. I didn't have a Janelle yet. I didn't have, you know, all these people, and I didn't really have a place to record. We had to kind of change places at the last minute because there was construction going on right across the street from the place I was planning to record and our friend Ben lent me his apartment last minute because he was going to be away uh, I had to like try and organize this whole thing and then Rail comes in and I'm like you're waking up from cryogenic sleep go and she's just like gasping and and like heavy breathing for like literally 45 minutes with all the lines <laughs> in the right places and I'm like so this could actually be good is what is <laughs> happening <laughs> Yeah, we were used to the audio being a constant un- unmitigated disaster. I mean, and to be fair, <laughs> it kind of still is. There's something about, like, you know, because we work in pretty, I don't want to say they're simple mediums, but, you know, manga is sort of done by one or two people. All prose is done by one or two people. Audio is obviously way more people are involved. And particularly since we don't live in the city we do most of the recording in, it's always been kind of a challenge getting the right space and making sure all the actors are available in that brief period we can be there. Also, like she said, we had we had to cast it very quickly and we were sort of missing a couple of key characters. So it's always like running last minute panic, you know, like <laughs> nothing is going right, ever, you know, crying and, and screaming and whatever. And then the chapter comes out and I'm like, wow, great job, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> You can't tell at all because Rebecca is such a skilled editor that if somebody did two lines and the first half of the line was good in one take and the second half of the line was good in the second take, she'll just combine them together. 
and everyone is recorded separately. Oh yeah, and that, then that's, that's pretty standard. Yeah. Though. That's not like anything. Well, special. not in Japan. Oh no, no. What I'm saying is that like putting lines together. I mean, mm. anyone who's worked with audio can tell you that you could be surprised how often you can just like fake things and and fudge oh, things yeah. and and you know it doesn't always work out and it's always kind of like a crapshoot based on the the kinds of performances people are giving you and how similar they are and everything. But you know, any silence is an opportunity to mess around with the lines. But so, one of the things that you've always had to do is with Tokyo Demons, you had, like, everybody just do the take until it sounds right. Mm -hmm. But because audio is a drama and they all speaking to each other, you take, like, six takes of every line of them saying it a different way and then pick the ones that react to each other the best. Mm -hmm. So, like, it is a sheer force of will editorial to get this to work. (laughs) (laughs) It's very fragmented and always done last-minute rushing. Yeah, the audio department in particular, more than any other department, is always two seconds away from failure. But I think the thing is, <laughs> I, I, I do think that's pretty common for like movies and plays and all of these things that yeah. involve so many people with different creative skills trying to come together and create something. You always feel like you're about to d- fall apart, and then it all comes together at the end, mm-hmm, you know? Yeah. Yeah, doing a, a one audio book and one audio drama is kind of interesting because you, you do have to think about it in different ways. And one thing that I really noticed is that although I use fewer sound effects in the audio book, it's a lot harder to time things when you're dealing with an audio book because you've got narr- narration and the time it takes for somebody to say, mm-hmm. you know, he pulled back his fist and looked around him and then slammed into the other guy and he went flying into a wall is so much longer than it takes for the sound of a punch and the sound of somebody hitting a wall. So you can't even really quite time it properly. Mm. So you kind of fudge things and you have kind of generic fight sounds that go on beyond something and just the struggling goes on for 90 seconds longer than it would in real life because that's how it's got to go and you just kind of try to find something that sounds okay. Whereas in the audio drama, I'm really trying to create the idea of like a real-time sound effects. So someone's walking down the hall, you hear them walking down the hall and the moment when the door opens is the moment when they walk through the door and like, you know, you change the sound of the atmosphere for, for a larger room so it's like an echo and all that kind of thing. And it's been really challenging because a lot of these things are the first time I'm doing something. Like the chapter seven of Awake opened on this fight scene that was three minutes long and the most complicated thing I've ever done in my life. Was that the 50 track? One? 50, 54 tracks, not including wow. the things that I sort of mixed separately. Yeah, so it's probably closer to, like, originally 60 different, different mm. kinds of sound that overlapped in three minutes. Yeah, and, like, the thing is, I'm sure that any if anyone is actually a pro audio person, I'm sure this is not that out of the question of something that you would be working with, I, I, I assume. I don't know. I, I'm kind of... That was a pretty hectic scene. It was I mean, It was pretty intense, uh, yeah. I say that, but just, I mean, even just the, the sheer act of scrolling through to try and find what the hell I was looking for uh, <laughs> was, was really difficult, and, you know, just going through it and being all like, okay, so she climbs a ladder here, but I don't have a ladder sound, but I've got this good metal clanking sound that I like, and I'll have the different footsteps and figure out what the speed of it should be, and then all that kind of crap, so... That was really intense, and I am sort of in a situation now where I've been working with audio for like like this for three years really seriously, which is obviously not long enough to have like a real you know professional career. So I am still learning a lot of things, and every every time that uh, one of these challenges comes up, I'm always like thinking about it for two months before about how I'm gonna like put all this together. And sometimes I get taken by surprise with the length of time things take, which is. <laughs> A little huh. embarrassing, but you know it's it, it's been really interesting, and I've gotten good feedback from for a week, so I'm I'm happy that mm-hmm. people seem to be enjoying that for the That's most part. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh, I what kind of that. stuff would you like to do? 
I, I really like the idea of showing people what can be done with this format. I mean, there are definitely other audio plays out there. There are people who are doing other audio plays that are great, but there is this kind of attachment to like old school Americana that is not really my favorite thing. Mm. Like this idea that, oh, we're doing an audio drama, so it's going to be a film noir. Or it's going to mm. be, mm. you know, really based off of the sort of 40s and 50s idea. Or it's going to be these kind of things that are, are when tied. When radio plays were big. And yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. Tie, tied to mm. the American tradition of radio plays. Which again, you know, there's some cool stuff you can do with that, but it really doesn't interest me personally. And I like the idea of really taking it and playing with the format and showing the different types of genres and the different types of things you can do with it and trying to do stories that feel really modern. Hmm. Uh, which, again, is a little bit more in the Japanese tradition, I think. Uh, yeah. uh, Leanne is really into audio dramas from Japan and she keeps trying to get me to listen to them and then I tell her, I don't understand what's going on. This is doing nothing for me. I'm sorry, dude. Listen to him <laughs> scream and listen to this other guy scream. It's like, clearly yeah. they're upset about something, but I couldn't tell you what. I know, like, 20 <laughs> words of Japanese total and I, I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> You're missing out, man. <laughs> Well, if I had time to learn a foreign language, I would learn. Uh. Well, this is kind of why I started learning Japanese. Like, it's my Japanese is not that great, but I was like listening to audio dramas. First of all, once I got to a point where I could understand, listening to them over and over really reinforces your Japanese. It's like the way they use audio dramas there is so cool. And I, I mostly listen to Boys Love because it's it lends itself really well to the audio format. And these are like you know usually a story that's come in one manga volume. It's a love story. They're usually going to get it on at the end. It's mostly drama. People screaming at each other throwing bottles at each other's heads and that makes so much sense why wouldn't you do a high really intense modern romance or drama or something and put it in audio they do it in japan and i'm like oh my god like the manga's coming to life i don't care that's not animated all the life i can hear in the actors because so much of anime is the acting right the voice Mm -hmm. acting they take super seriously there so awake was a really good way to, to test that format and it's becca's really well. big on working in a lot of genres yeah mm-hmm. she said oh, you yeah. want to we're looking at comedies and stuff uh, yeah i would love to do a comedy i would love to do a romance mm-hmm. uh obviously i love really intense character drama yeah most things work in audio i would love to do something that was a fantasy if we can think of a really interesting way to deal with something like i had the idea in my head a little bit of you know you've got your like your quest group and your traditional fantasy so if you had like a little quest group of a limited number of people four to six people or whatever who was kind of journeying through all these different areas that you could really show with sound and you could have insects and birds and fire and those kinds of like really strong sounds so it wouldn't be one of these like vast epic wars but it would be like a really sort of small enclosed story i thought that would be something that would be really cool but if somebody has got to write it for me i'm not uh yeah, somebody pitched that <laughs> Mm-hmm. Somebody pitch me something like that. That or like a really great romantic comedy. I have a bunch of pitches in my my folder that I am really looking forward to reading, and I just have not. It's been so hectic the last month. I, I owe everybody a response by the end of April, I think, and I just I haven't even looked at them. Mm-hmm. I feel kind of bad. So all you guys, audio hopefuls, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's coming. I swear, I'm just really really busy. <laughs> Lillian, do you want to do a few words about your process in comic? I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> like how comic goes from sort of the creative mind to Sparkler Monthly. Um, you, do th- you do thumbnails and like uh, your editorial. Yeah, process. I mean, one of the things that's really different about comics versus prose, and to some extent, I guess all three of them have very different production processes. As difficult as it is to write prose, it's more difficult to write a comic in some ways. Not necessarily in terms of like. It sounds just like because... a challenge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mostly because so you have sort of two different skill sets that people are usually working with, because most yeah. of our comics are, are written and drawn by the same person. You have to both be great at art and a good writer, um, yes, rather than absolutely. being able to specialize in one thing. And there's a physical limit to 
how many pages you can draw in a day in a way that like you you can binge write a lot more just straight content than you can draw content and your ability to revise that content is a lot more straightforward in prose than it is in comics yeah so there's a lot of emphasis on my end of trying to do stuff up front if i can whether it's giving notes on the script or whether it's giving notes on the thumbnails once you kind of get past that point i try to avoid revising things as much as possible when it comes yeah. to the art so like it's easy to tweak the dialogue that's not a big deal you know later later parts of the process but if i want someone to rework the flow of a page or if i think somebody looks off model catching that sooner in the process is better than later depending on how big the revision is like it's easy to tweak certain things in photoshop but if you're looking at a massive redraw that's just time consuming and any time that you're spending revising is time that you're not spending doing additional pages but yeah i mean i i start kind of with an outline for things and then we go to thumbnails and then i look at the thumbnails and then sometimes we do revisions on thumbnails sometimes there's more revisions sometimes there's less revisions and i have a question because i I've never yeah. looked at comics before working on Sparkler. When you say uh-huh. thumbnails, like, are they big? Because when I first heard it, I was like, are those like tiny little pictures that they make or something? You know, it honestly depends. Every artist kind of has their own way of doing that. I'm very sort of format agnostic. So like, I don't really care very much how you turn things into me as long as they're workable. The, Does it just mean like, like rough page? Like rough sketch page, page layouts. Yeah, okay. rough page layouts okay. is what they are. So sometimes they are small. Sometimes they are, you know, like a couple inches by a couple inches. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're half a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. It just depends on how people are comfortable working. But the idea is to do a lot of them and do them quickly and to sort of get out different quirks you might have in, in your layouts so you're not using the same panel angle all the time, mm-hmm. uh, which was something that came up in one of the shorts that I'm working on right now. Is It was 90% good, and then there was two sort of visual quirks that they had. They kept using sort of like repetition of panels over and over again in the story. And I was like, it worked really well the first time or the third time, but you don't want to do it all three times. Pick something different, combine those panels. So the idea is to rough out how the story is going to flow and then be able to review it kind of on a global level so that it's not taking a long time to do that. And then you could completely change it and do all 30 pages all over again. And it's not going to take you six hours or whatever. It's going to take you one hour. Particularly with things in the manga style, what I think is really specific about manga is it's all about the flow of the page. And this is true with, with Western graphic novels as well, to a great degree. But you really want your your job as a comics creator is to lead the reader's eye through the page and to use the panel placement and the camera angles and the composition and the balloon placement to control how the reader's experiencing the story and moving through the story by either speeding things up or slowing things down and there's different visual techniques you use to kind of create that effect in some ways more importantly than what's actually going on in the individual panel and sort of the level of detail that you're rendering everything it's that flow i think is something that's very specific to this particular medium something that i like to work with people on like you you can see this if you're looking at professionally done comics too whether it's manga or comics is that there are certain things that i really like that have a much simpler art style where what's drawing me to them or what what appeals is either the story itself or the pacing you can make up for less sophisticated art in some ways less sophisticated kind of rendering skills or, or anatomy if you really know how to lay out a story and kind of Mm -hmm. pull the reader into it through 
the visual pacing. Whereas if you're rendering everything in exquisite detail and you've got all these really complicated panels and everything's, you know, the sort of high gloss, beautiful, whatever, but it's difficult for the reader to kind of engage in it on a visual level. Mm -hmm you're not really going to have a successful comic in some ways. And like any, <laughs> like a good Japanese editor, you're also an assistant on most of the comics you work on. Um, like, mm -hmm. you do bubbles and, uh, right. lettering, <laughs> and yeah. lettering and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the things that's sort of unique about Sparkler and that, I mean, I'm still not fully replicating the Japanese model because if I was, then I'd be able to go to people's houses and, like, <laughs> sit and, like, literally sit on them until they finish their yeah. pages. <laughs> um, bring them food and, and coffee and stuff. That level of hand holding like legitimately happened so I've, I've had meetings with Japanese editors where he was like oh yeah I used to help out Koga Yoon with the series that she did for blah 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 I would help her lay down tomes when she was behind deadlines he's like I was really good at doing clouds <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like that's not something I've ever done like I've never had to have that level of involvement with my creator's work but, but you're um, getting sparkler <laughs> yeah but no, but as things are now, so I'm I'm doing the layout and lettering for the comics that we're doing, which is a good experience for me too, because I mean a lot of it was I knew basically how to use InDesign, but not really how to use InDesign, and so kind of forcing myself to improve on that particular skill set, and then it just saves on kind of time and efficiency for me to be able to do that stuff myself. But yeah, I'm definitely a lot more involved in kind of the nitty gritty of production than I was at Tokyo Pop, partly because I mean I, I had multiple series, original series that I was working on at any given time at Tokyo Pop, plus a monthly roster of licensed books. Mm, so yeah. balancing the workload between licensed and original was always a huge challenge for all of yeah. us in editorial. And the nice thing about Sparkler, I mean, even though I'm doing freelance stuff on the side, like Sparkler is Sparkler. Like everything kind of has a similar process and a, a similar priority level. So... Which is now, 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 Red yeah, alert yeah. all the time. Exactly. But, but I mean, so this is actually, this is sort of apropos of nothing, but one of the things that excited me about doing Sparkler when you guys first talked to me about it, which for those who are, who are curious, I was visiting, I'm from Massachusetts, and I was visiting home over the summer back in 2011, and Becca and Leanne basically drove up from Connecticut to sit me down and talk to me about getting involved <laughs> in what would eventually become Chromatic Press. We had a different name for it at the time. Or rather, we had no name for it at the time. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, we had an ugly name of list that we couldn't come up with anything good at for a long right. time. But, uh... One of the really difficult things about Tokyo Pop and the production model that we had is that you didn't really get any reader feedback until after your first volume was done and a, a while after your first volume was done because the print process in the U.S. is you send something to print and it act, doesn't actually hit shelves for four to five months. Mm, yeah. So people would have to be done with their book quite a bit before we actually sent it to press because we had to go through copy editing and layout and whatever. But there's a pretty big gap between when you finish something and when you start getting real audience feedback on it and particularly in the early days when we were sort of figuring out what we wanted to do as a company and what kind of stuff was going to really appeal to people that lag time made it really difficult it was just it was very challenging to anticipate the audience and to kind of just see how we were doing and, and get sort of a little like a temperature reading on whether we were on the right track or not and so the ability to serialize things month by month and get instant reader feedback is super exciting and that's something that's very definitely pulled from the Japanese model and that I'm personally really pleased with how that's going because I think it's useful for an editor to get that feedback but it's also really rewarding for the creators to say oh my work's not just disappearing into the void people are actually yeah. reading mm -hmm. yeah I never 
thought of that because the oh, Japanese, yeah. the translations, they already got it when they were serialized in Japan. But if you're an right. original creator here, you never get that until like a year right. after you're finished. Wow. Right. That was what that kind of kept us going on Tokyo Demons for, you know, it was almost, we did that for almost two years before it, it jumped into Sparkler, but it was one of the only things that kept us doing it because it was mm. kind of an experiment and we were like, you know, we hit chapter four or five and I wasn't really getting feedback and I was like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Like, it's a lot of work. What am I doing? And then we had this fan named Norma who came in and started commenting on everything and it was literally like one or two, like her and maybe one or two other people who were commenting and I was like, you know, that's kind of all I need to know that somebody's watching it as we go and the amount of creation of juice you can get from one person one stranger going out mm. and saying I really liked this particularly if they're like I liked this following part or I like this line or this character or whatever mm. and that will just like get you off your butt and you're like oh man I'm gonna go write more for this person <laughs> <laughs> and that's something that we also try to do as editors because that kind of feedback from the public although you know we've been getting really great discussion on the Sparkler forums and stuff it does take a while to b- build up a readership as editors that is also our job we are the first line of feedback for all of our creators as opposed mm. to them throwing it into the void that we try to encourage our creators and I know that you know I'm sure many of the creators who are listening to this who are like I work in prose I know how horrifying it is like I know that we can be kind of hard on our creators sometimes <laughs> as we're trying to push towards the what we think is like kind of the best product the most exciting the best for the magazine the best for our readership we do try to encourage them as much as we can and get their juices flowing because you're right when like you have this long chain like it's very easy to get discouraged if you're not getting feedback on stuff that you're really excited about it's also easy to get kind of like you know slag down when you're like I don't I like you know my creative drive is dwindling because I'm working on this stuff you know because it Doing anything creative is, like, way more emotionally draining than doing a 9-to-5. I mean, mm-hmm. not to say that, the, you know, 9-to-5 has its own complete... That's soul-crushing. It's different. It's crushing in a different way, yes. But when you're creatively, it's, like, the smallest piece of negative feedback will destroy you. Mm-hmm. Or even just the lack of feedback. It's like, why am I doing this? You know, because you're throwing pages in the air and you're like, I hate it. It's so much work. Ah, and you're thinking about it constantly. And that's something that we really wanted to cultivate, a community of people behind it. And we try to encourage, like, everybody to be as positive as you can. Don't tear people down for no reason because you don't realize how much that can just destroy a piece of art that you like you know if you're being nitpicky about something or you feel like trolling but we've been very fortunate in that the feedback that we're getting and the other creators coming in it's just like this great positive feedback loop of encouragement and stuff and we're getting really great stuff i'm really proud of everything that we've put out like there has like mm-hmm. never been a chapter where i was like and eh, just put it to print like never i've always mm-hmm. been like good job everyone came through people are gonna love this and sometimes it was just as dumb as being like you need a better cliffhanger or you know mm-hmm. read what that person said in the forum i think they're guessing the mystery change it you know like <laughs> <laughs> the next question we have is from kai x jew when did you become interested in editing were you always interested in light novels comics and radio dramas and what- i feel like we i feel like we covered that yeah what what were some of your favorites I assume um, Becca's going to say TJ in a mall. Uh, yes, because I'm <laughs> such a nerd for that, yeah. And now she's on our store. Yay. I know, I know. How can you not be a nerd for that? That's such a great book. <sighs> yeah, so yeah. good. So name one, one or two manga or audio dramas or light novels that really inspired you. I actually posted about this on my Tumblr fairly recently. I don't think it showed up on Sparkler. But one of the really formative American comics of my childhood was Excalibur. <gasps> was, Me too! Like, the Anglophile spinoff of the X-Men that was running in, like, the mid-90s. Oh, it was so um, terrible. I loved it. Oh, it's not terrible at all. It's so fucking great. Um, <laughs> like, the art is great. It's incredibly inventive. Like, there's a zillion really amazing female characters. Yes. It's all about sort of, like, adventure and fun and 
weird stuff and kind of found family and it's like in hindsight it's it's definitely one of like my formative influences in a way also that like that led to other things that I was interested in that led to other things I was interested in I can kind of trace like my creative development from that to sort of what got me into manga eventually in a sort of roundabout way yeah I would say that's something that was just incredibly important in my creative life cycle I didn't get it at all as a kid because it's so, like you said it's so weird. They like world hop and there are dragons all over the place and I thought yeah. it was pretty awful, but I loved it because I was a kid and I was like, oh boy, the dragons in this superhero comic. It and stands also, up incredibly well. Like it's really, one of the oh, comics man. that I actually still have copies of that I kept and I, I did a reread fairly recently and I was like, I, mean, I don't have the complete series, but I have probably about seventy five percent of it. It really is good. Another thing, so like it was drawn. The, the arcs that I liked the best were drawn by a guy named Alan Davis, who is one of the greats of the Western comics industry. And one of the things I really like about it, particularly with the female characters, is he pays a lot of attention to fashion design. And each of the characters, aside from sort of their superhero costumes, like the civilian clothing that they wear is all extremely unique and specific to their character in a way that I don't think a lot of Western comics artists bother with. Uh, or I like superhero comics, you know, that you take them out of costume and they're all wearing stuff that looks like they got it at Walmart. Mm. And what Kitty Pride wears versus what Rachel Summers wears versus what Megan wears is all completely tied into who they are as people. No, I, I remember way. that, yeah. Um, yeah, it's true. The point where, like, Kitty wears one of Rachel's outfits at one point and is profoundly uncomfortable about it. She's like, I don't wear heels this high, I don't wear dresses this short, like, it works great for her, but this is not me at all. Um, yeah. And I'm like, there aren't a lot of, particularly dude um, writers and artists who would kind of have that moment in some ways. It's, it's really a terrific series. Other than that, I, I tend to kind of get really obsessed with things and then sort of skip around a lot. So there aren't a lot of, it's tough for me to answer this question. People ask like, what do you really like? And I'm like, dude, it depends on what day of the week you talk to me. Um, I've been on a really long homestuck yeah. for the last probably two years, which took me a long time to get into it. And I found that the series and the fandom to be so incredibly inventive and satisfying on just a zillion different ways it's it's a huge time investment to kind of get into it and to actually read through it but i feel like the reward on the back end is incredibly high um, like the ulysses of web comics <laughs> you really, it's it's literally it, i think it like passed some other thing as being like the longest work of fiction in the english language fairly recently <laughs> did um, it really oh yeah, wow like on like a word count basis it's Damn. really fucking long but yeah, I mean, so one of the things I, I talk about a lot when you ask, what a sparkler looking for? What kinds of things are you looking for? And it's like, I want something new and that surprises me. And that's something that Homestuck is incredibly good at. Even though so much of it is based on like internet memes and kind of like cultural cliches from the 80s, the stuff that he pulls out plot-wise and like the developments that he's taken character-wise over the course of that 10,000 pages of comics are just they're really inventive and you just sort of you never know where things are going and yet it feels in hindsight incredibly coherent and like it's very well thought through even though if you listen to him talk about his process it's like 50% seat of his pants and then 50% stuff that he's known from the beginning. So from, from a storytelling perspective, I'm just absolutely fascinated by that. And then 
seeing what fandom does to spin it off in a zillion different ways is also mm. like, even more fascinating. Yeah. Oh, no, we'll talk about a story that, like, lends itself to really interesting AUs, you know? Yeah, no kidding. Like, built into <laughs> the very structure of the series is, like, AUs. And I have to say that, like, I've engaged in fandom for a long time, and my, my philosophy has usually been to follow specific creators rather than, than to follow series. I've definitely gotten into new content because an author who I liked was writing for it, or an mm. illustrator who I liked started doing fan art for it. I'm like, oh, I should check that out. Rather than getting into a fandom and then reading everything that's ever been written about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And because of that, I've I've gotten a lot more into reading AUs than I used to. Like when I was in college and sort of before then, I was much more kind of sticking with canon. And what's appealed to me most in the last five or six years has definitely been when people take canon and do things that are much more divergent from it. And Homestuck is just 100% tailor-made to do that. Mm. (laughs) My other thing, I'm really a sucker for sports manga. Um, oh god yes so good like i think that that's something that's not obvious based on sort of my other interests and the stuff that i've worked on like i would fucking love it if someone pitched us a really awesome sports series oh Um, i think they're i think they're hard to do which is why people oh yeah but fujo Fujo sports is that what love love sports yeah i was just about to pipe in about fujo sports i'm so excited about that i (laughs) can't Totally the list of like stuff that you guys need to buy me at TCAF and that's on it. Yeah. So. But uh yeah, like Hikata no Go is one of my all time favorite series. Oh Kufuri Kabute, Big Wind Up is one of my favorite Oh stories. my god. Oh, god. Yeah. I'm loving Lomushi Petal right now. I'm, I'm <laughs> watching the anime for that, not reading it. Yeah, there's something that's super appealing about there's a competitive aspect to those, but there's also I think like what I really love about Japanese media in general is that your enemies are never, they're very rarely truly evil, you know? Um, it's like people who are selfish or people who are, you know, angry or, or have issues or whatever. They're not really evil. And I think that sports manga kind of encapsulates that in a real world way. So, like, if your average shonen is all about taking your enemies and making them your friends, um, sports manga does that in a way that, like, transfers to actual reality. And I, I just, I like that a lot. It's all about the feels. That's, that's the other thing we we're going to talk about that we <laughs> we went offline for a while there to kind of as we we're resetting someone's internet and what we were talking about offline as that was happening was like the aspect of one of the things we look for in all series that go into Sparkler is that there's lots of feels and sports manga is absolutely full of feels. We have like uh, at least in my department we have something called the Doki Doki principle, which anybody who doesn't know Doki Doki is the sound effect for a heartbeat and and. Uh, Japanese and they use it in manga all the time but uh, every chapter of every series should get your heart racing at least once so if that's through you know something exciting or it's a thriller or action or whatever or just feelings like intense intense feelings and in fact having a really really strong emotional core is essential to anything that runs in our magazine because that is the foundation of female gaze anyway that like sort of character interactions relationships and emotional catharsis particularly character based is is really important and the number of people that we've talked to in the pitching stages that were like oh you know there's not really an action scene here or there's not whatever and it's like that doesn't matter because this person just confessed to this other person and like that got me way worked up than anything else we want you to be screaming when you're reading these going oh my god oh my god so sometimes it's just making think horrible things happen to the characters and sometimes it's like making them kiss you know like mm-hmm. a good kiss should make you go oh my god you know like yeah a good yeah. principle in real life and fiction 
Yeah, get, get emotional <laughs> Make people scream. No, definitely. Definitely feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's, anybody else want to add some? I mean, let's talk about TJ and Amal very briefly. TJ and Amal. big favorite around here. Okay, if anyone has not read TJ and Amal, go to tjandamal.com or whatever that web address actually is. But, you know, just Google TJ and Amal and you'll find it. And go and read it from the beginning because it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just because she's in our store, because I was geeking out, like, even harder before... Like, you know, What's it's a thing. We we heard she needed somebody to help her with her store. We were like, please let us help you with your store. Uh, <laughs> this was a, the Sparkler Distro program was something we had planned to do much later. But EK Weaver needed help. We're like, we'll we'll do it right now for you because we want to have TJ and them all in our homes, like boxes and boxes of it so we can touch them. And like, it is such a <laughs> comic. Oh, yeah. That, okay, that's that sounds creepiest. way creepier. And I, it, it, that's exactly how creepy it was. <laughs> No, it's I true. Think I get volume two. I bought volume one from EK at a show here in town like a long time ago, and I'm really those. excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm constantly like you know because I'm always emailing her back and forth now about like oh you know very professional things, professionalism, professionalism. I have to hold myself back from like the the caps lock key and the you know you keep making me cry and. <laughs> I just want them to be happy, which is my also my refrain for offbeat is I just want them to be happy in all caps. I just uh, I just want them to be happy. <laughs> oh god, yeah. Well, in a lot of ways, I kind of I, I, uh, offbeat and TJ and Amal. I feel kind of similarly about them. Like offbeat yeah. is kind of the high school version, and TJ yeah. and Amal is when you kind of graduate to as an adult. Yeah, that, you know, There's like a lot in there. Yeah, the sort of. It's like a buddy story with like you know homoerotic tension underneath. Obviously, it's way more. It's it's not implicit in TJ Animal. It's like on the surface, but yeah, well, it's not really of... implicit in Offbeat either. They just don't really. Well, <laughs> they, they never make it to the, the mature level. <laughs> yeah, because they're high school yeah. students. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't but, actually see any dicks. But just these. <laughs> No, there are no dicks in Offbeat. That is a difference. No, yeah. Uh, but uh, having these uh, these stories that feel really real and where the characters are part of a community, even though the, the focus of the story is on this relationship between these two people, right. the side characters feel like the people you actually know. And the, the situations situ- that they're seeing are real places that feel grounded. Oh, and yeah. And I mean, reality. like... Offbeat feels very, very New York, but TJ Namal yeah. is a road trip story, and if, if you read her references, it's incredible, and just, you know, the, the background art and the places that they pass by and the way that, like, you know, the different parts of the country look and feel is, is so real, and so it's amazing. One uh, of the great things about the print edition, actually, is that you get her little notes on sort of just little details about the chapter of who mm-hmm. this whatever character in the background was based on, or, like, this Chinese restaurant that they go to is so-and-so and such-and-such, and you're like, wow, geez. <laughs> just the, the intense level of, of work that went into that series is just yeah. so impressive. Oh, I know, I know. So. And it's ending soon. I, what am I going to... I don't know what I'm going to do when it ends, because... I have a lot of really the, the the deep emotional connection sounds stupid, but it's more like the really intense emotional reaction to it. Uh-huh. Which, you know, particularly when you've got a story that's been going on so long, and that's another thing tied to serializ- serialization that yeah. you get to know the characters so well and you care so much about what happens to them, and you're seeing their story revealed a little bit at a time. And again, you just want them to be happy. You actually care so deeply about what happens to these people because they feel like people who you know at this point, and you just you know you, all you want is for something to work out, and you know it's going to be a little bit heart-wrenching because it's such a realistic story and 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 so you know that in the real world you don't run off together and skip and have your kiss and then it ends and it's like the wedding scene or whatever
or like a Disney movie, you know that there's something a little more bittersweet there because these people are, they're human and they're messed up and it's not going to be perfect, but you hope they can find some kind of happiness together. I think also with serialized stories, you're spending real time investing your emotional energy and you go on your own like journeys in life as you commit to a serialized story. I think that when something like that ends, it's so satisfying, but also so sad because it coincided with a part of your life, you know? Yeah. You yeah, can think of all the your own life. Yeah, like all the things that have happened since you started reading. I remember just a few things that I've gotten really invested in when they finally ended, just feeling like what am I gonna do now? Oh, <laughs> Well, the answer with Sparkler is we've got something even better right up around the corner. So, yeah, stuff we can't we can start teasing about, but our summer lineup is exciting. We're starting to get the submissions round stuff. It's starting to to debut in Sparkler because the the first round of stuff we had was mostly people we knew in fandom or you know professionally, and we're like, oh, I really you know, do you have a pitch for me? We're sort of soliciting pitches. But then we had the big open submissions period, and then we, we got some, like, really interesting stuff from there. And that's starting mm-hmm. to make – like, stuff like wild, wild stuff that we're like, whoa, who are you? Come here, come here, come here. You know, so, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be it's gonna be fun. Okay, so let's go through these questions. No Nate had some questions that were a little more specific. Rebecca, how did you get started with audio editing before Tokyo Demons? Kind of talked about that. Yeah, that kind of got went over. So the answer was, I didn't really. I was, <laughs> this was all a big experiment. I had a little bit of music background and then I just kind of went crazy with audio for three years straight and this is what happened. <laughs> What's the next thing for Sparkler Audio after Awake is done? I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's not entirely true. We have, no, no, no. Yeah, we, we have our we, next big series is in very early stages right now but we want to do something short before then we ha- yeah wake and the next nothing week. concrete has been decided there is something in the future that is going to be a very large technical challenge so when it actually happens is kind of up in the air i'm looking at some some shorter works in between which is that folder i think i mentioned it one i have a folder of submissions that i just have not had time to touch and i'm sorry guys i really am it's hard to run a department but i'm gonna i'm looking in there and and we'll see what happens that's the summary <laughs> leanne how long had tokyo demons book two chapter eight been planned also why <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, i'm gonna briefly talk about something that you'd brought up with homestuck which i think is is kind of relevant here in terms of serialization sometimes when you're working on a series for a very long time you have the big stuff in your head where you're like okay this is part of the cohesive story arc and then you have i don't know how i'm gonna get from point d to point e or whatever this is a really good example of something that you know tokyo demons we originally planned about 12 years ago and the scene that came i assume he's kind of talking about the chase scene i'm not going to go into details because it's a humongous spoiler but there's sort of a car chase scene in rain as silly as it is to say at that point and it was a result of a giant plot point that happened kind of a really bad cliffhanger and stuff and that was that plot point is 12 years old that was always kind of the big changing point for the series it's kind of like the almost like the emotional climax of of the entire series of she's talking books. about the most horrifying thing that happened recently for those yeah, guys yeah yeah if you're reading book two you know exactly what happens it's that horrible ending where she has got that look on his face and it's like the sky falls basically it has a lot to do with toya but after we'd written that, I didn't know how to get from that point to the end. It would always been kind of a little bit vague. So two weeks before that chapter went up, Rebecca was like, hey, do a really awesome chase scene with ISA. And I was like, sounds good. And I wrote it the week. So 
So some of the stuff that you have, it's always part of the plan. And then the great thing about serialization is as it goes along, and I was like, you know, the next scene is mostly going to be talking and crying and trying to process, kind of like in book one where there's the giant climax and then they're processing for chapter eight. And this one, she's like, you can make it an action scene and I think it'd be more powerful. And she was right. Most of the good ideas in, in Tokyo Demons are Rebecca being like, hey, fix this. <laughs> like That's a gross exaggeration, but I do yell at you when things get too... Either when they get too cheap or when they get too boring, I think. I don't know. Sorry, that sounds terrible. Cut that part out. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to cut it. No, you should cut it. (laughs) But also, I really like... But, you know, everyone needs somebody to bounce off of. Mm -hmm. And you helped me develop this from the beginning. This has always been half your story. I I really like that about serialization. You get to that point and you're like, after you've been writing it for so long... You're like, oh, you know, I never thought about this would be such a good connection. Let's do something different. And also, especially, let's do something different. Because it's very easy to fall into traps when you're doing a very big serial that it's like, this is the part where they all talk in the church. And it's like, we've been doing that. Okay, there's got to be another place. Change locations, change who was talking. Somebody's high. You know, like, there, there has to be something that changes the dynamic of the scene or people are going to get bored. And also, I will say, and this I, I kind of want to put out there for fandom, because this isn't just me. This is with a lot of our serial people. When you give feedback, sometimes we change things because either it's like, well, this isn't working, but these people really like this character or people are shipping this. We have actually changed the relationship couplings at the end of Tokyo Demons once we started serializing that we were like, this person's getting this person, this person, this one, whatever. And then as we started serializing, we're like, screw it. This ship should actually be canon. So like, don't be afraid to kind of throw stuff into the mess because although we don't want to compromise the original vision of what we're doing it actually has an influence you know you want to see what people are reacting to you know you want to speak to your audience that's the nature of of being creative is letting things evolve and you know especially when it comes to relationships like either romantic or friendships or anything those are the sorts of things that are so based off of the way that characters bounce off each other that on the kind of micro level where it's it's like the little moments that come up and you don't really think of beforehand they just adapt and evolve from from the larger story relationships are based on that kind of a thing and so seeing that these two characters have a connection you didn't really get and then not being so stuck in a particular romantic relationship that you can kind of see that and take it somewhere is one of the sort of interesting things that uh... well because when when somebody's writing what they consider the love interest it gets bogged down there are some people that people there are some characters who get so stuck in their tropes and I think a lot of creators, when they think, oh, this person has to be a love interest, therefore they have to be as attractive as possible to as many people as possible, or this is the beats of the love story, one, two, three, four, five, that they get kind of stuck in their heads. But we've discovered that we kind of had some couplings that we had in mind. We're like, this person will like this person, this one, whatever. But then once we started doing it, we started seeing the shipping capability, right? That you're like, wow, these people have really good chemistry. And I never really thought about it until I wrote it out. And then we just started swapping couples. We're like, mm, I like this person, but this person better. At the very least, letting them, in the context of the story, explore that, being like, I didn't expect to be attracted to this person because they got to develop as individual people without being bogged down with like you have to be compatible with this person or you have to be hot or you have to be whatever it was just a bunch of people in a room and you start seeing how their personalities are sort of meshing and and who's good with whom it is so much fun oh my god coupling is like the best part of serial where you're like i don't want to do this anymore i feel like shipping these people maybe it'll work and oh it's so great (laughs) but uh she also had a question when is the next part of tokyo demons going to be ready and is it the last part of book Oh, yeah. That, uh, no Name's actually a man, by the way. Um, oh. uh, yeah, the next part's the last part. It's going in May. It will finish. And then we're going to do a couple short stories, and then we'll start book three. <laughs> <laughs> God, right. getting there. Scotty6000 asked, 
how and why did you guys come up with the idea to create chromatic press and eventually spark their monthly? I think we we covered that. We covered that pretty well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, also, Nonane said, what's your preferred method of caffeine delivery? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Um, Leanne and I are the worst, and sometimes we buy 24 bootleg energy drinks at one time in bulk from Aldi. Okay, there's a brand, it's a generic form of Red Bull called Red Thunder, and it's 75 cents a can, and we buy it in cases. Yeah, and Tokyo Demons would not exist if not for this terrible drink. Don't really don't try this. Yeah, th- don't don't try this at all. Don't do what we do. Like I got like all these questions like how did you get started? How did you do this and like do not follow my example. <laughs> it's a bad idea. You should like I have a... get lots oh. of sleep and exercise and eat <laughs> things that are healthy and don't do the things that I do. My god. Don't destroy yourself for your art the way that some of us do. What were you going to say, Carolyn? I have um, a caffeine suggestion slash story. I live in Austin where everyone is a hipster no matter how hard they try not to be. (laughs) And one of my hipster things is coffee. And I have an incredible recipe for cold brew iced coffee if anybody ever wants to know. Um, However, it takes like 16 hours. (laughs) (laughs) The trick is you course around quality beans and then you sprinkle a little bit of mint, like fresh mint, just a tiny bit, Hmm. like a sprig of mint into the grounds and then you put them in. I use a milk nut bag and you mix it like one to one ratio with the coffee and the water. And then you add another ratio of water once it's brewed for like 16 hours after filtering it through this filtration thing that I bought. It's amazing, though. It's great. I recommend everyone cold brew coffee and also ride bicycles and have mustaches. or No, not, none of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a big tea drinker, so I usually have a cup of coffee in the morning and then switch to tea afternoon. I've been drinking all sorts of different kinds of tea. I'm, I'm pretty agnostic when it comes to tea consumption, but I just bought a whole bunch of stuff from Adagio recently. So I got like the Sailor Venus tea and the Sailor Mars tea, which are both delicious. Mm. And then I got a bunch of uh, samples of Pu'er, which is kind of my new new addiction, which doesn't really taste mm. like tea. Like it doesn't have that panic slight bitterness that black tea has. It has this really nice earthy flavor. Oh um, God, you guys are going to live to be more than 60. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. not Beck not and I. <laughs> no, no. Digging a deeper and deeper hole of health. Oh yeah. See, I watched a lot of Gilmore Girls as an adolescent and I got a totally unrealistic expectation of the healthy amount of coffee a human should drink, which I joke about all the time because I'm really, really into that show. I was thinking about it the other day after my fifth cup of coffee and I really think that I need to like stage a self-intervention about it. Especially if you're doing like like brewed like heavy brewed stuff you should not be drinking more than like two cups of that a day oh those things i only drink one of that then i just switched to hot coffee and then regret it because i live in texas (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, i will say energy drinks give us a very specific caffeine content so we can track it i'm a biochemist for my old day Mm. job so i make sure that we're not going to actually die we're always on this cusp of like what i think (laughs) is going to be like overdosing but like we can carefully measure it because they have to put on that because you know kids were dying when they would drink these energy drinks because they wouldn't have drunk that much coffee but they're like oh it's like soda that's the one good thing about these energy drinks that law dictates that they have to tell me exactly how many milligrams of caffeine in it and I can put it on a chart and make sure <laughs> just so <funny. laughs> anyway what were you going to say Jill oh I was just going to say I drink everything coffee okay. tea coke if coke didn't if I wasn't afraid of getting an ulcer I would drink coke all the time it is delicious 
Okay, quick blurbs about some of our series. So we got a really great pitch in with our submissions last year that I was very intrigued by, but I wasn't really sure what to do with it. And so I suggested to them, and I kind of wanted to like work with them a little bit before we committed to something larger. So I was like, can you pitch me a side story of this or like a prequel story that would fit into the universe, not really be about these main characters, but maybe they would appear and it would kind of sort of see what we do with that. And they came back to me with this really awesome idea that is going to start probably in June, and it's a three-part short story uh, called Ring of Saturn that, of all things, has a cameo from Gustav Holst, the composer. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I never expected to see him in a manga-style comic, but here we go. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm super excited about it. I think it's going to be really neat. So it's an interesting time period. It's it's, uh, a cool story. I'm just, I'm really pleased with how it's coming out so far. So look forward to that. Um, look forward to part two of Dinner Dits coming in, in oh, May. So that'll be about the same time as mm, this podcast love Dinner is coming Dits. out. I am loving Dinner um, Dits. Oh, I definitely look forward to working a lot more with Alexis Cook in the future. She actually, she's another one who pitched, I think, to you guys at Oticon last summer. Yeah, she, she came by Oticon. So, yeah. so we may see that at some point as well. And then we've yep. got one new serial starting probably June or July, which we haven't officially announced yet, but that's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. And Jen Quick is already working on her new series, or will be very shortly. We've been talking about it a lot. She hasn't put too much like pencil to paper quite yet. So maybe August for that one, September. Kind of, we want to actually get like a backlog going first. Yeah. But she's very eager to kind of dive into that and, and get it going. Keep sort of the production pace that we have for Offbeat with something new. You know, and I think also it's worth noting that uh, Kaiju, the, the creators who are doing Rings of Saturn, um, yeah. they helped on one of the chapters of Offbeat, didn't they? Weren't they assistants? They assisted Jen? Yeah, they're friends of Jen, um, yeah. just completely coincidentally. So <laughs> it's going to sound like nepotism, but I actually didn't know that they knew each other until after I talked to them for a bit. They um, came to us at Oticon as well. We met them. They were, they're Pigtail, were they related to Pigtail Studios or something? They are really cool girls and very multi-talented. So that's, that's the end <laughs> of what I'm excited about. Audio? Oh, I wish I knew what I was doing after Awake, but Awake has quite a few more chapters left, and I will say that we have already recorded the really big reveal. There were three (laughs) separate character breakdowns that are going to be amazing. There's this this one moment with Janelle that I've been looking forward to from the beginning that has been recorded now, and JJ did a fantastic job because she can do the freakouts like nobody else. And of course, uh, uh, Jesse, who's playing Robbie, he's always like friggin' amazing. That that guy, that guy. I'm like, have your have your uh, you know, sound like slightly less together, slightly more together. You're freaking out like 30% more and he just pulls it off. It's great. <laughs> there was uh, a kissing scene in it too. Our there was a very kiss. brief kiss. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, all, all I can tell you is the next two chapters of Awake are going to be really intense and, and there are some great performances that these guys, well, these guys put it, together for me. It's a mystery and this uh, is when you kind of find out the answer to the mystery, which mm-hmm. according to the actors who showed up and were like, what? Like, I don't think you could predict it. Really well. Yeah, about, about half the actors knew it was going to happen and half the actors did not know. So a lot of them, they read the script and they were just like flipping out. So it was so good. <laughs> no, all um, the actors on that are, are great. So. Oh, they are so great. Mm-hmm. Pros, we're finishing up gauntlet soon which is uh, really sad because that was the first light novel mm-hmm. that kind of began in sparkler and is going to end in sparkler and i love gauntlet i have such a, a soft spot for it dead endings actually is not is going to be ending in the next couple months as well that's a relatively short novel compared to most of what we do mm-hmm. and uh carolyn has been working with me on that she's been a line editor the process very very briefly that we do in prose is 
somebody hands in a rough draft, usually I talk to them over Skype about it, the general structure of revisions to do, then they revise it, send it back, and then we do a line-by-line edit in track changes in Google, where we actually break it down on the sentence level and kind of rearrange sentences, and, and it's pretty harsh in the beginning. Almost everybody, they get the first chapter back, and it's just a wash in red. They're like, I did what? What's happening? Why are you changing my book? And it's like, it's mostly just like really nitty-gritty sentence structure stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they revise it again, and then we, I don't know, it's like a four-step revision process. There's kind of a lot there. But I will say that it, this is not a pissing contest. My the Making prose is so much easier than making audio or comics. I fully acknowledge that, which is why we have more prose running than anything else, that it's like if one of the other departments is falling behind, prose is something you can get done in a relatively short amount of time, and there's also a lot of help that I can give. And same thing with Carolyn. Like, the editors can really help on the line-to-line level. There was one case where I got a chapter where all of a sudden it, fl- it went from past tense to present tense for about a page, because she had written it in such a rush, and I just changed it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and we do have uh, Kalevia. I love Dusk and Kalevia so much. Everybody it hits all my buttons. It, it hammers all of my buttons, the stuff that I want in fiction. That's going to be running for a long time. But we do have a new book called Skyglass that's starting in the summer. And we sort of did a soft launch with it in Cherry Bomb. Anybody who's following sort of the Cherry Bomb department, um, which is brand new. It's called sort of our the erotica imprint. The stuff's not super hardcore, but it's definitely... Uh, it's our mature line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's our mature line. And we decided that Skyglass, which is already a very sexual story, doing a prologue that was sort of in Cherry Bomb as a soft launch for the book might be an interesting idea. And people seem to really like it because it is... Skyglass is such a cool book. I mean, it's like... Oh, yeah. We talk about wild stuff we got over the transom in the open submissions. Um I picked it up and was like, what is this? Holy shit, yes. Just the way it's written and the characters are so interesting. And it's just, it's like, it's just crazy and amazing. (laughs) So, yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah, it's sort of a a futuristic sci-fi fire spirits and elf rock bands. And, like, everything is kind of, like, explosive and in your face and, and... colorful and we got a really great illustrator for it. I was going to do all these just before we got on this meeting we were looking at sort of the (laughs) clothing references that the author was sending to the illustrator and it was incredibly bizarre sci-fi cosplay from like other countries where it was like wow this is this is going to be totally different from everything else running in Sparkler which is what we love. We like to diversify. It still has that great female gaze core where it's like there's a lot of emotion in it. Character development it's really about the people or in this case aliens a lot of them. I mean some of them are humans some of them aren't. But yeah really really excited about it's that like glam rock like yeah it's kind of like glam rock glam rock meets, meets tron meets yeah like, <laughs> like hot topic a little that bit be, i don't know why but my mind's picture of sky glass is like one of those 70s uh anime about like yeah. space rock or maybe crazy. like that daft punk yeah, movie. Like yeah. Daft punk. <laughs> oh interstellar uh, yes yeah, there's definitely an element there. You know, when we talked about sort of doing science fiction and in, in Sparkler, we didn't want to do too much of this sort of sterile spaceship stuff. And Awake, Awake is a good example of that, that it's like six people in a spaceship, but it's a very organic feeling story. Uh, Rebecca had very strong feelings about when she went to the illustrator and said, this is not going to be like Star Trek. I want graffiti on these walls. I want the ship falling apart. It looks like people living in this gross ship and they're always yelling at the computer because it's not doing stuff right. Like something that we wanted it to be very character based you know it's really about the characters the technology is sort of a backdrop and Skyglass is another really great example of sort of science fiction slash fantasy because there's really a strong fantastical element where it's like yes this is about the future and space and stuff but it's really about people and society and explosions and the different technology that like the technology is great because they're like rock stars in it so they have interactive music videos where you jump into the music video and I was just like oh my god I want to publish this so bad <laughs> that will be exciting as well and we have a couple other um 
books and short stories on the back burner, but most of the, with the exception of Dead Endings, which is comparatively short, everything else that we run in prose runs for like 9 to 14 chapters. So it, we don't quite need as much turnaround as in comics, where a lot of the stuff is short comics, or even a volume of comics is only about 6 chapters. So we have more long-haul people. I think that's more than enough. Yeah, yeah we've been talking for a long time. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> SparklerMonthly.com, ChromaticPress.com. Yeah. yeah, Twitter support. Oh, Thanks yeah, for all just... your support, guys. You know, we, we are really looking to keep our membership numbers up, and it's been really great that you've done so much for us so far. But, you know, if you like what we're doing, tell all your friends about it, too. We've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up. We're almost done with our first year of, of Sparkler. And, oh, and, my you know, God. It's going to be even better. May so. is, uh, when this podcast is published, it will be our 10th issue, which is pretty wow. good stuff. So uh, yeah. stay tuned, everyone. Thanks. <laughs>